Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary. That means simply in silent prayer, we admit or acknowledge any known sins to God, and He immediately forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We are restored to fellowship, and we recover the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit so we can continue our forward advance by means of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. We thank you for the privilege we have, the freedom we have in this nation to so gather, to teach your word. We thank you for the history that we have in this nation, for our forefathers who uh, were willing to come to this country to establish this country on biblical principles, and which provide the framework for freedom. Father, we thank you for those who have been willing to serve in the military services to uh, be willing to, and in many cases, to make the ultimate sacrifice that we might have these freedoms. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless us with these freedoms, that we might continue to proclaim your word, to teach the truth, to send out missionaries, and to support Israel. We pray for our president. We pray for our national leaders, our political leaders, civil, civil leaders, military leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give those responsible for our security skill and insight as they evaluate the data that comes into them. Father, we know that ultimately our security, our strength, lies in you, for you are our eternal fortress. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we would come to a greater appreciation and understanding of what we have before us that we might not take this lightly, and that we might have our faith strengthened in your revelation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to start a new series, a series on understanding how we got the Bible, how we can trust the Bible. It's answering the basic questions of can we trust the Bible, is the Bible reliable, and how do we know this is the Bible? How do we know this is the Word of God, as opposed to other claims that other books put forth, or claims that some scholars today set forth that that uh, uh, somehow books have been left out, or these were just a collection of books that an elite few chose to impose upon uh, the rest of Christ- Christianity? So in the course of the next uh, six or seven weeks, I hope to go through and establish this and go through a number of other uh, factors in understanding the importance of the Bible and why we have these 66 books as the ultimate source of authority for Christianity. We live in an era today when most people are pretty ignorant of the Bible, in fact, I almost hesitate to ask you, and I wouldn't, wouldn't do this, but if I were to ask for a show of hands as to how many people had actually read the Bible through from cover to cover, in most churches it would be very embarrassing because there are very few Christians 
who have ever taken the time to read their Bible through from Genesis to Revelation. So they're pretty illiterate when it comes to the Bible. And because of that illiteracy, they fall prey or they're easy prey to those who come along and make certain claims uh, which question the authority, the reliability, or the veracity of the Bible. On top of this, we have a general culture at large now in America that is also biblically illiterate, as opposed to a hundred years ago when the Bible was part of the curriculum in public schools and uh, people read the Bible. People were familiar with the stories in the Bible, the characters in the Bible, the events and history covered in the Bible. As a result of that, you could assume a certain uh, homogenous frame of reference in American culture. Now, that's not to say that everybody was a Christian or everybody thought biblically, but they did have this common reference point. And people did believe that the Bible had some value. And if you were to make a statement and say, well, that's something that's biblical, that carried weight with people, that impressed people, that that carried authority. That's not true anymore. In the past 100 to 150 years, there has been a, a steady and effective assault against the Bible in our culture. It has been removed from the marketplace of ideas. In fact, this last week, we were, uh, or the last couple of days, went down to Washington, D.C., and attended a meeting of a uh, group called the Concerned Women of America. There were women of both sexes at the Concerned Women of America. <laughs> there were probably 40% of the attendees were male Concerned Women of America. And it's an organization that was started in the in 1979 with uh, nine women in uh, San Diego, uh, initiated by Beverly LaHaye. And now it is the largest women's group in the country, political action group. And there are many things that they do, and they're involved in, and many groups in different states that are involved in uh, influencing legislation, being involved at every level of government uh, in many different areas. And I'll say a few things about that perhaps second hour. But one of the speakers yesterday referenced a poem. I think he said it was on page 37 of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's first um, volume on the Gulag Archipelago. And I, my memory will probably get this a little messed up. But this young girl wrote a poem and said that... Um, we have the freedom to pray as long as the only one who hears is God. See, that's what has happened in America in the last hundred years as well, is that there's this steady assault from the secular fundamentalist on the left attacking Christianity, wanting to remove God from the, from the marketplace of ideas that somehow God, the Bible, biblical ideas have have a place, you have the freedom to worship, but don't do that, don't do it out loud. Don't do it in such a way that it affects anything in our culture, so that it affects uh, the legal process, so that it affects the ideas in education. Just uh, as long as it's between you and God, that's okay, but don't bother the rest of us. And so the result is that we have a culture that is so ignorant of the Bible, and I think something that goes along with that is there. They, they are ignorant of history, so they become prey to every uh, challenge or every criticism that comes along directed to the Bible. And they don't have any enough knowledge of history, of the Bible, of religions in general to be able to evaluate these claims as to whether or not they have any truth. As a result of that, vast amounts of untruths and half-truths are being popularized today about the Bible and Christianity that cause people to think that there's no basis for Christianity whatsoever. That's just some sort of idea that popped up along the way. And it, Christianity is, is just another subjective religion like all of the others, and there's no real objective, reliable basis for Christianity. In fact, you can't even trust the Bible. 
and perhaps this has become most crystallized in recent in, in recent past by this novel that I have mentioned and critiqued in the past called The Da Vinci Code. And in there, there is a claim that there were many other books, many other writings in the 2nd uh, and 3rd century that were also part of the, quote, Bible, should have been included, but the reason it wasn't was because, according to that book, Constantine uh, influenced the process so that his political agenda would be uh, furthered and established and his authority in the Roman Empire would be bolstered. And so these 27 books of the New Testament were selected and many, many others were just uh, overlooked or disenfranchised or marginalized. And there's no, and the claim, of course, is that there's no reason for that. Those are equally important books. So this has given rise to a, a climate today where there are many people hearing these claims, reading these things. There have been specials on television uh, reiterating these things because of the phenomenon of this particular book. It is sold, at least the statistics I had back in March, it had sold over 3,000 at that point. I think it's closer, I mean, 3 million at that point. I think it's closer to 5 million now. And it's still in hardback. The book's been out almost two years now, and it's still in hardback. That is, that's an extremely unusual in the in publishing world. In fact, the, the author Dan Brown's become so popular that earlier books that had already gone to paperback have gone back into hardback so that the publishers can, can reap additional profits on this. So people today are asking questions. Christians in churches are reading these books. And the books that are related to it that have come out uh, over the last 10 or 15 years based on the Gnostic Gospels and uh, questioning the reliability, the trustworthiness uh, of the Bible. And Christians who have no frame of reference, haven't been taught well, are reading these things and and it creates tremendous doubt in their minds. Not only that, they their family members, friends, co-workers, read these books, and ask questions that they're unable to answer. So I want to address these questions in this series, give you the information you need, challenge your thinking a little bit, uh, not only uh, to encourage and strengthen your faith in the Bible as the uh, Word of God and that we do have all of the Bible, that nothing was left out over the years, but also to address this to those who have doubts, those who question. Even among believers, there are those who go through periods in life when you question the, your, your belief in the Bible. How do I know this is true? How do I know that I'm not just buying into something because it makes me feel comfortable and it's just a, as much a subjective thing as anyone, any other religious system? Now, there are various questions that people uh, ask when it comes to studying the Bible. One, and I want to run through a list of these questions. The first is, isn't the Bible just another human book, subject to error and expressing different opinions about God? Second, people ask, isn't the Bible full of contradictions and errors? See, this is a myth that is often promoted in many high school, college classrooms and sociology classes and some science classes that and in history classes, that the Bible is just full of contradictions and errors. Third question we'll address. Hasn't the Bible been changed over the years because it's been copied and translated so many times? This is a basic misconception that the Bible, that the translations we have are translations of translations of translations of translations, and it's an ignorance of the process of translation number one, and that the Bible, uh, we do have a very ancient manuscripts of the, of the Scripture in the original languages in which they were written. Fourth question, how can we be sure that the Bible we have today is the same as what was originally written? Haven't corruption enter into the text? And, of course, I point out at times that, yes, that's true. But we have, it's not that we lost anything. It's that there are, you know, word changes or variations or in some places are words left out in some manuscripts, but it's there in other manuscripts. Or it's been uh, added in some manuscripts and it shouldn't be there, but we can evaluate those. There's a basis for that and that's called textual criticism and we'll spend some time talking about that as well. 
Another question that is frequently asked today, didn't the church, i.e. a few powerful men such as Constantine or some group of theologians, and it's always those white male Europeans that get the blame for this, didn't this, this small group of powerful men just arbitrarily decide which book should be included in the Bible and which book should be rejected? And didn't their acceptance of some and rejection of others just reflect their male-dominated, power-hungry agenda. I mean, that's that's really what's being asked today. That's the claim from many who are challenging the reliability of the Bible today, is that, that this was just a cultural construct. It flows right out of what is called uh, the, the postmodern mindset, that every culture has its own construct or its own structure of reality, and they pick and choose things on the basis of that, and there's no culture or cultural construct that's any better or any worse than any other cultural construct. And that uh, there's no, of course, what underlies that is that there's no such thing as an absolute truth. Another question people ask is, there's so many different interpretations of the Bible. How can we know which one is right? Of course, that goes to the issue of thinking. There's a lot of different claims in a lot of different other areas of life. And the issue is that you need to learn how to read, how to read critically, how to evaluate different claims to truth, whether it's in one arena or another. I mean, you ought to recognize that in whatever field you're in. There are people who have different uh, opinions of how things ought to be done. And you have to learn how to uh, evaluate those claims and not just accept somebody's word for it because they have a Ph.D. or... Uh, some other academic qualification behind them. Another question, isn't the Bible the product of an evolving religion that originated with the Babylonians and Assyrians? And this is something you often find uh, <clears throat> put forth in as, uh, college classrooms as well, that the Bible is really just a, just based on the same kinds of myths as the Assyrian creation myths or Babylonian creation myths, except the Bible just sort of cleaned them up a little bit, and it's uh, it's a little different. But all of these are, the claim is, all of these are basically the same. And, of course, the underlying assumption here is that all religious thought evolved over time. And the presupposition is is the theory of evolution. Another question, doesn't the Bible contain historical and scientific errors? So we, we need to answer those questions, and we will over the course of this series. I want to approach this, though, from a very structured methodology. We need to think logically about this. Now, I'm not saying that our ultimate authority is logic, but there's an orderly, logical approach to any particular uh, discipline or any particular study. And if a person is serious about anything in life, then they ought to be asking significant questions, serious questions, and they ought to be willing to address the answer and not just be a mental vegetable and just accept something that somebody throws out in some classroom or some claim they hear on on the Discovery Channel or something else on television without investigating it. Because the issues here are deal with eternal things and ultimate issues. So we have to uh, take the time to evaluate this. You don't want to be mentally lazy when it comes to something like this. So we have to stop and we have to think it through on a logical basis. And I think the place where we start is asking the question, does God exist? Does God exist? And the, there are two possible answers to this question. The first is the answer, no, God does not exist. Now, some people may say, well, I, well maybe there are three answers, yes, no, or maybe he exists, or maybe he doesn't. Now, I didn't ask the question, how do we know God exists? I said, does God exist? Either he does or he doesn't. Either there is a God or there is not a God. Those are the only two options. If God does not exist, then, of course, God has not revealed himself. There are no holy scriptures. There is no Bible that come from God. And if there, God, there is no God, then we can't know, obviously, we can't know anything about him. And all religious talk is ultimately meaningless. This is the position of the atheist, the materialist, the evolutionist. For them, the ultimate reality is a universe that's composed of simple matter and energy. That which is eternal is simply matter or energy. Everything that we have in the universe is a result 
of the random collisions and accidents that occurred over a vast amount of time. In other words, everything is just a product of, of, of an accident. Eventually, the planets, the solar system came into existence, the planets came into existence, and eventually life, accidentally, just by chance, sprang from non-life. Inorganic material gave birth somehow to organic material. In their view, everything is accidental. There's no meaning to life. There's no significance to any events in life. Everything is just random chance. And you as an individual are nothing more than a cosmic accident produced by the random collision of various molecules. And that's all there is to life. Now, unfortunately, in the history of philosophy, in the history of thought, many philosophers have put the label God, G-O-D, on that ultimate reality. For example, in the ancient Greek philosophy, you had a, a thinker by the name of Thales. Thales was one of the earliest philosophers, and he thought that the ultimate reality in the universe was water. And he looked at water composed of three components, and you know it can be, or it can be in three states. You have a gas, you have a solid, and you have a liquid. And he would, he and many of the other pre-Socratics would put the label God. G-O-D on that ultimate reality. But that ultimate reality then is an impersonal, mechanical, material reality. It's not what we mean by God. So for our purposes, we're going to assume that by God, when we ask the question, does God exist, we're going to assume that by the term God we mean the kind of God expressed in the Bible, a personal, infinite God, a God who is omnipotent, a God who is the creator of all things. Now, someone may say, well, you're just arguing in a circle. You're assuming what you're trying to prove. No, we're not trying to prove the existence of God in this series. The focus here is on the Bible. Is it reliable? But we have to start at the ultimate starting point, which is God. And so, for the moment, we're going to assume that God does exist and that the God of the Bible does exist. So we will then proceed from that particular point. So we can either answer the question, does God exist, with a no, in which case there is no revelation. Every, all claims to any kind of ultimate truth, therefore, are fallacious. You can't get to any kind of ultimate reality or ultimate truth. Everything is simply subjective, uh, a subjective impression. There can be no claims to universal truth, no claims to any universal right or wrong, uh, and any claims to the existence of a, de- of a deity are simply the random product of subjective personal experience. That's the first option. The second option is that, yes, there is a God that exists. There is a God that exists. Now, when before I get into answering that, let's, I want to address one more thing. Why is it that people ultimately would say that no God exists? Well, there are two reasons, basically, two categories of answer. People reject the existence of God for one of two reasons. First, they do it for intellectual reasons. Perhaps they have difficulty believing in things such as miracles. They have a hard time understanding resurrection from the dead. They've never seen that. They've never heard of anybody who is truly dead and in the grave, coming out of the grave. So they don't, they have a difficulty understanding how that can take place. Sometimes they have difficulty with creation. They have difficulty with understanding uh, certain things that are described in the Bible that are supernatural, that are miraculous. And those things can be addressed, but often it's based on misconceptions in the Bible. They have they don't accurately understand what the Bible does say and doesn't say. At other times it's because they simply haven't studied out what the Bible does say. They they don't read the Bible. Or perhaps they have intellectual doubt because they've been taught certain things, such as that evolution is a fact, and they simply believed it because that's what their teachers or professors taught them, and they've never really investigated the facts to see if that's true or not. But more often than not, the reason people reject the existence of God intellectually is because morally or spiritually, They're not comfortable with the existence of God. 
there's often a, uh, an underlying agenda in the rejection of God. Because, you see, if a God exists, and if the God that exists is the God of the Bible, then this God created them. This God is a righteous God who is eventually going to judge mankind. And this means that the, their actions, their thoughts, their life is, going, is something for which they will be held accountable. And there's a God that's going to hold them accountable. And so they're not comfortable with that because they know that if this God exists, it means that I have to live differently from the way in which I do live. And so rather than facing those moral realities and obligations, they would rather suppress, as the Bible says, suppress the knowledge of the truth and reinvent God in some other, in some other way. As a result of that, there are many people who seek to come up with all kinds of intellectually defensible reasons to reject the claims of the Bible. But when we come to this, and a question that you need to answer in your own life as a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, it's a question that you need to address and think through in your own life, is if there is not a God, then nothing matters. You see, if there is no God, nothing in life matters. Everything is meaningless. There's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as right or wrong. They're just what works, what seems to make society function better or what makes society fall apart. But there's no real absolute truth. So everybody can do whatever they want to do. There's no real meaning or significance in life because once you die, your molecules just fall apart and that's all there is. There's no God, nothing matters. But if there is a God, then nothing else matters. If God exists, if the answer to our question is yes, that God does exist, then there's nothing ultimately more important than finding out who he is and what he wants. There's nothing more important than that. What his claim is to you, because this life is awfully short, and if there is a God, then when this life is over with, we will be in his presence in some way. As a believer, if you are a Christian, you will be in the presence of God to enjoy him forever. But if you're not a believer, then that presence, that time when you spend in the presence of God is going to be a time of harsh judgment and facing a penalty. So if we answer the question yes, then we have to realize that carries certain serious implications and put certain responsibilities on you as an individual with regard to finding out who he is. If the answer to the question is yes, then we have to ask if God is capable of revealing himself. Can he be known? I mean, if something exists out there that is greater than creation, it can be known to exist, because if something exists, it can be known to exist. So we'll just make the assumption for now that God exists, that uh, he is also capable of revealing himself. You see, the, the, when you ask the question, is he capable of revealing himself, that brings another question in. The question, does God exist, really addresses the idea, of, is there something there? Is uh, the, the that of his existence, that he, the fact that he exists merely tells us that he exists, but it doesn't tell us anything about who he is, or what his characteristics or attributes are. For the moment, we will assume that he can reveal himself to us, that if this God is the God of uh, Scripture, by definition of the term God, he is omnipotent. He is able to do all of these things. He has... Uh, he is capable of revealing himself because he's not just an impersonal force, or a personification of matter, but that he is a personal God whose knowledge is so vast, so infinite, that in an instant of time he comprehends and understands all of the vast complexity of the universe. Everything from the subatomic world of the atom, the complexities and the relationships between neutrons, protons, and electrons, to all of the dynamics in the DNA chain, which determine our physical makeup, characteristics, and many other attributes that we have, 
to the intricacies of a biological cell. That God in one instant knows all of these from the microcosm to the macrocosm. He is a God who can immediately comprehend all of the workings of the universe, the galaxies, the solar system, all of the systems that we see and play in the world, biological systems, uh, meteorological systems, geological systems. He is a God who has created all of the physical laws so that he understands all of their inner working. So if this is the God that exists, then obviously this is a God who is capable of revealing himself to us. And he is a God capable of so controlling that revelation that he is able to make sure that what he wants to communicate is communicated. See, that's a very important assumption that people forget, is that if God is in charge of the communication, if God's in charge of the revelation, then that means that God is capable of accomplishing his goal. That means when he intends to communicate Proposition X, then Proposition X is not only communicated, but it is understandable to us. Now, that doesn't mean we understand everything there is to know about God, but it does mean that whatever God reveals to us, he is capable of doing it in such a way that we are able to understand what he has revealed, to comprehend what he has revealed. Otherwise, the whole process of revelation would be an exercise in futility. And it would just be some being out there speaking in some sort of code, and it's up to us to kind of guess at everything. Now, that's the impression that a lot of people would like to give of God. But that is not the God of the Bible or how the Scripture presents the God of the Bible. So in terms of our assumptions, we're going to assume that God does exist, and the God that does exist is the God of the Bible who has infinite knowledge and infinite ability. And this leads us to the next question, and that is, has this God communicated to man. Now, there are three ways we can answer this question. We can either say, yes, he has communicated to man. Second, we could say, well, we don't know if he's communicated to man. Some people answer it that way. They're out there just kind of guessing. And then the third answer is, no, he hasn't communicated to man. If the answer is no, then again, the Bible can't give us any information about God. We're left in the same trap is the person who says there's no God, because if there is a God and he has not communicated to us, then we can't know anything about him with any level of certainty. Once again, the Bible would be no different from any other religious book. It would only record human impressions about various religious experiences. It would be no more significant than than the diary of Thomas Jefferson or uh, a work of fiction by Melville or philosophical speculation of John Locke or Descartes or Plato. It would just be a great product of human intelligence, but it wouldn't be of anything any more significance. So if we answer this question, no, it's, we end up dismissing the Bible without really giving it a hearing. If we answer it we don't know, again, we end up in that same trap. We can't really know for sure, so therefore we dismiss it because we have no basis for evaluating. However, we would never accept that in a court of law. If somebody makes a claim of being innocent, they're making a claim that they have not done something, and we go to court of law, and we don't know whether they did it or not. But we're going to give them a hearing. We're going to give them an opportunity to marshal evidence and witnesses to that claim. And then we're going to evaluate the evidence and the claims to see if that claim of innocence is true. We would never dismiss a claim like that without giving it an honest and accurate hearing. We want to honestly and objectively investigate the facts and see if they support the charge. The same thing is true when it comes to the claim that the Bible is the Word of God. We don't just dismiss that out of hand, but we want to make sure that we properly evaluate the evidence because if the Bible is the Word of God, then there will be corroborating evidence, not proof in the sense of constructing a mathematical proof or a logical proof or a 
or a, or a geometric proof or scientific proof in the laboratory, but it will certainly document and uphold and corroborate those things that are claimed in the Bible that we can validate, so that that which can be validated then goes further to show that the things that we can't validate must also uh, be true. The charge is made today that the Bible is just a collection of religious literature written hundreds of years ago, and it's no different from other claims. I mean, actually, if you want to gain a hearing for whatever it is you're writing, just say that God told you. I mean, this has happened hundreds of thousands of times in in, in history. So how do we distinguish between some things that are false and fraudulent that are clearly not from God but are just claimed to be so to bolster their own position and something that may actually be from God? What we see from the skeptics is that they extrapolate from the fact that, well, so many other things have claimed to be from God, therefore nothing can be from God. See, that's their ultimate argument. If A, B, C, and D all claim to be from God and they're not, then they jump to the conclusion that nothing, including the Bible, can be from God. But once again, that flies in the face of evidence. See, there is, if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you're not asked to be a Christian despite evidence. You're not asked to just leap of, it's not a leap of faith. Never use that term, by the way, leap of faith, because that implies that there's no uh, intellectual reality to faith. See, faith in, faith is a form of knowledge. It's not despite evidence. It's not in the face of evidence. It's based on evidence. God doesn't want you to put your brain in neutral and just believe things that are illogical, irrational, or, or unrelated to reality. He asks you to think and to evaluate Because in my opinion, over the course of my life and the years I've spent in ministry and the men that I have met and studied under who are devout believers in the Word of God, I have there are very few counterparts to them in the secular world. These are men of vast intellect and ability who believe in the Bible as the Word of God, who know what objective research is all about. Now, when we look at the Bible... We have to answer the question, how, do, how are we going to answer the question, is this the, is this the Word of God? How can we validate that, that, it, it, that its claims are real? Well, first of all, we have to understand what the claims are in the Bible. We have to start with an overview of the Bible to understand what its nature is and then to look at its various claims. And then once we understand its claims, then we can begin to look at the evidence which supports that claims or perhaps evidence that contradicts that claim. So we'll begin, first of all, with an overview of the Bible. The name Bible comes from the Greek word biblia. The Greek word biblia. B-I-B-L-I-A. And it's the plural form, and it means... a books in the plural, or a collection of books. So the word refers to a specific collection of books that it's accepted as being authoritative for Christianity. A specific collection of books accepted as authoritative for Christianity. Now another word that is sometimes used is this word, canon. K-A-N-O-N in the Greek, and usually brought over into English as C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N. We do not shoot people with the canon of Scripture. The Greek word canon means a rule or a standard. So you can have many different canons. You can talk about the canon of Western literature, which is a collection of uh, significant books that have been agreed upon in the study of English literature as a standard for English literature. When we use the word canon in describing the Bible, we're recognizing that there are certain books that are included in the Bible that are considered to be uh, divinely inspired. These are the authoritative books for Christianity. These are the books that God has uh, inspired that God has revealed to us 
and that other books, while they may have devotional value, while they may express a lot of truth, while they may be of a certain devotional value for Christians, are not from God. They may have uh, reflect a lot of truth, but they are not the revelation from God. So there are some books that are to be revered and studied and honored and others that are not. And this is the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture has two sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. That word testament comes from the Greek word or the, and the Hebrew word for covenant, originally related to the Old Covenant, that is the Mosaic Covenant, which is what dominates the majority of the Old Testament, and the New Covenant, which was established by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, where he, he said at the Last Supper, as we celebrate in, in communion, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. So we have the New Covenant, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books to make up a total of 66 books, Old and New Testament. And that's in the English, in the, in the uh, Hebrew of the Old Testament. They're actually arranged a little differently, whereas in the English Bible we'll have First and Second Kings, First and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those were divided into First and Second because it took two scrolls. They were so long. And and in the Hebrew, you just have Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. So they're counted as one book, whereas in English we would count them as as um, as two books. Thirty nine Old Testament books, twenty seven New Testament books. The Old Testament is divided into three sections. The first section is called the Torah, or the Law, or the Pentateuch. Pentateuch meaning five. These are the five books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second section is sometimes referred to as the uh, prophets, what the Hebrews call the Nevi'im. And this would be the early prophets and the later prophets. The early prophets would be like Samuel and the kings. Later prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the uh, what we call the twelve minor prophets, which are just called the twelve in the Hebrew Bible, and that's that's one one collection. And then you have a third division called the writings. This would be, include uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, books like that. We'll look at the Old Testament organization more. Uh, next time when we begin to look at how we got the Old Testament. So this is the uh, overview of the Old Testament. New Testament, you have the Gospels and Acts, which make up the historical section. Then you have the Epistles. Epistles by Paul are arranged first. Then we have those by uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, so we have the epistles, and then the last book is in and of itself, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. This is a basic overview of the Old Testament. Now, the Roman Catholics adopt another set of books called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha were, are only accepted by the by uh, the Roman Catholic Church's canonical. They didn't accept them as canonical until the Council of Trent, which was about 1555 A.D. These books are all included in the Old Testament. They're not part of the New Testament at all. They're included in the Old Testament, and Jews never accepted these books as canonical. You have various historical books, uh, wisdom books. If you're interested, sometime you ought to get a Bible that's got an Apocrypha in it and read some some of the apocryphal books, and then read the canonical books. And you will see a difference. And I often challenge people that way. If you are in a, in a college classroom and some professor comes along and says that the creation story in the Bible is no different from the creation story in the Enuma Elish, then you ought to read the two. And if you can't see a difference there, then you probably ought to drop out of college because you'll never finish and it's a waste of time. And there's an incredible difference um, between the two. It's, it's, it's like the difference between reading a uh, first-grade reader 
and uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. There's a tremendous difference between the two, and it's almost immediately uh, recognizable. Now, Roman Catholics have accepted those books. Protestants do not. So Protestants, as well as Jews, only have the 39 books in the Old Testament, although they number them a little differently in the, in the Jewish canon. The New Testament canon has 27 books. Now, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. The Pentateuch, which is the uh, first part of the Bible, is not really the oldest Old Testament uh, scripture. The oldest is probably Job, but we don't know precisely when it was written, probably in that period of time just before Abraham was called. So let's say Job was written about 2000 B.C. The New Testament was completed by 100 A.D., so this covers a period of 2100 years. Uh, could be that it was later, so usually most people uh, identify the Pentateuch, having, which was written about 1400 B.C., as being the first part because that's what we know for sure when it was written, from 1400 B.C. to 100 A.D., 1500 years. So it's at least 1500 years, the period of time during which the Bible was written. It could be as long as, as 2000 or 2100 years. Now, over 30 different men wrote the Bible. Now, when you think about that in comparison to other religious books, such as the uh, Quran or the Book of Mormon. These were written by one individual at one particular time. might have taken them a year or two years to write them to get the alleged revelation that the, that uh, was the basis for that, but it was written, those were written by basically one person at one point in time. In fact, there's a lot of similarity between the two. You have an angel that appears to an individual, gives them a special code or ability to translate, or there's an angel that translates this holy book. So man doesn't have the original anymore. He just has this translation and then that entire collection is then given or claims to be a revelation from God. In contrast to that, the Bible is written over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years. Over 30 different men wrote the Bible. And these men came from all walks of life. For example, Moses was trained from birth to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. Yet he turned his back on that to follow God once God appeared to him and revealed himself to him. Joshua was a general. Samuel was a prophet. David was a shepherd who later became a warrior and eventually became a king. Solomon was also a king and one of the wealthiest men in all of human history. Amos, an Old Testament prophet, was a shepherd and a fig picker. Isaiah was part of the nobility in Israel. He was related to the king. Daniel was a young boy from a family of the aristocracy, but he was taken hostage. He was taken as a captive to Babylon. And eventually, he became the prime minister of Babylon. Matthew, the author of the New Testament Gospel, was a Jew who worked as a Roman tax collector prior to being called by Jesus. John had a commercial fishing business, as did Peter and some of the other disciples. Luke was a trained physician. Paul was trained to be a rabbi. These were not, for the most part, these were not men whose major calling in life was to be religious. They were men who were in all types of businesses, agriculture, uh, vocations, uh, whether it's government, uh, military, or, or what? But they came from different backgrounds. Some came from a lower socioeconomic sphere. Others came from a higher socioeconomic sphere. Some were uh, the product of great education. There were few people as educated as Moses in his day, trained up as a child to be the ruler of Egypt, or Paul, who was trained from childhood to be a Rabbi, these were men of great education. Luke also was well educated. But others such as Mark and, uh, uh, who wrote the gospel and Peter were not, uh, trained. They were not those who had this great education. Yet when we look at all of that diversity, the Bible presents one unified theme. 
I mean, can you go out there and find any other collection of 66 books in all of the, in any library in the world that agree on the same theme? Every major theme that is mentioned in any of those books is agreed upon by each of those authors. There's no diversity. There's no contradiction between any of those books at even the most minor level. They all agree, even though they, these men did not know each other. They're the products of vastly different cultures. Moses is a product of the culture of Egypt. Daniel is uh, inculcated in the culture of Babylon. You have uh, others who are trained at different stages in the history of Israel. So there are vast differences between them. They wrote on three different continents. They wrote on the continent of Africa, Asia, and Europe. They wrote in three different languages. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. A few parts are written in Aramaic. And the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. And though they wrote over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years on three different continents and three different languages, and they came from different backgrounds, different cultures, they all agree on everything. You can't find that anywhere else in the world. This is remarkable. So the Bible has a has a unique quality to it. But above that, the Bible has a unique claim upon itself. And I think that we should end this morning by reviewing the Bible's view of itself. Point number one, the Bible claims to be the objective communication of God to man. It doesn't claim to be simply subjective impressions that men dream certain dreams. There's an objective uh, communication of God to man. In the Bible, we read the phrase, God said 46 times. God spoke 12 times. For example, in Exodus 34:10, then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. See, God speaks, and even in the times when God spoke in private, God always authenticated that private revelation with observable, verifiable, objective, uh, con- confirming signs. Another phrase that's used in the Bible is the phrase, the Lord said, which is used 233 times in Scripture, or the Lord spoke, which is used 133 times. Or we have the phrase, thus says the Lord, or as it was expressed in the King James, thus saith the Lord, which is used at least 502 times in the Bible. For example, in Isaiah 118, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. See, there's, the Bible doesn't uh, reject human reason, but it argues that human reason should be used under the authority of God's revelation. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. 502 times in the Bible, the Lord speaks. These are claims of objective communication. So over 900 times you have clear statements in the Scripture that God is speaking objectively to man. Hebrews 1.1 states, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. First point, the Bible claims to be the objective communication of God to man. Second point, the Bible claims to be a uniquely inspired revelation from God. The Bible claims to be a uniquely inspired revelation from God. Now, this isn't the kind of inspiration that you may think of when you hear the word inspiration. Often we see, we read a work of literature, we see a work of art, and we think, oh, this person was, was inspired, and, and that, that indicates that it is totally a product of man, but in some, at, at some level, because of their ability, they, they produce something of incredible artistic value. That is not what the Bible means by the word inspired. It is used in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
which reads, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine or for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Now, in the translation it, we have in English, it says, is inspired. That means in is something is breathed into, as if man produced something and then God breathed uh, into it so that it then became inspired. That's not what this word means in the Greek. The original Greek is the word theopneustos, which means that God breathed it, so that it's not the product of, simp- of a simple human ability, but that God exhaled this through a man. We see this explained in Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. See, they weren't speaking something that generated and, uh, and originated in their own soul, but that it came from God through their soul, so that he uses their own personality, background, training, education, vocabulary in the process, but he is overseeing the process so that the end result is free from error and is exactly what he intends to communicate. Other passages that support this are found throughout the Scripture. Second Samuel 23.2 The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. This is a claim that what is spoken is not something that originates with me, but from the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 7.12 is a rebuke of Israel. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. See, the words of the law are sent by his Spirit. You see, God is the author of Scripture. It's confirmed again in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those, that is, in those words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, what we have in the Scripture is a supernatural product. It is not something that involves only mankind. That's point number three. This inspiration includes and extends to the minute details of Scripture. Inspiration includes the grammar, and the details of the words. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke. Literally, it's a, not a jot or a tittle. A jot is a yod. That's the smallest letter in Hebrew. It's a Y, and it looks like an apostrophe in English. Or a stroke. A stroke would be the difference between a P and an R. That little leg on the bottom of an R would be a stroke. So that shows that inspiration extends down to the minutia of the text. Not the smallest letter of stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 22:29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. And then in verse 31, he says, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, the point that he is making is, if there's no resurrection, then God would have said to Moses, 300 years after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But because God speaks to Moses in 1447 B.C. and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's been dead for about 300 years and the others even longer, shows that they're still alive. So Jesus is basing the doctrine of resurrection on the tense of the Verb, amy, because it's present tense, it indicates they were still alive, that they had, there was resurrection. So you see he's emphasizing that the minutia of the text is inspired. Paul does the same thing in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then he says, he does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, singular, that is Christ. 
So he emphasizes the grammar again, that because it's a singular noun and not a plural noun, then the, the reference point is to one individual, that is, Jesus Christ. So inspiration includes the minutia. God is not simply inspiring the ideas of Scripture, but it's the very words themselves by which those ideas are communicated. Fourth, thus the Bible makes a claim to be absolute truth. Not merely truth that is the result of human observation or reason, but a universal truth that goes beyond all other truth. In fact, it's a truth by which all rational uh, truth and all human observation can be evaluated. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, God is so great and so far above us that he is capable of controlling the process of revelation to the degree that he can guarantee that the end product is not a misrepresentation or not false. Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 119.151 says, Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are thy law is truth. Psalm 119.142. Psalm 119.151. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Because the word is truth, man is prohibited from adding to it or taking away from it. Deuteronomy 4, 2, God said, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And in Jeremiah 26.2, that says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. Has absolute truth, therefore, point number five, is absolute truth, the Bible has everlasting value. It is not just something that is good for a period of time, but it has eternal value. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Isaiah 59.21, And as for this, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. The word has eternal value. Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And the final point, point number six, is absolute truth. It is the source of guidance and direction. Because it is true, it is the source of Guidance and direction for our lives. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And then in Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, this is the claim that the Bible puts on each one of us. This is why people ultimately reject the Bible and want to reject God, is because if God exists and if the Bible is his revelation to us, then we are to live on that revelation. That is to be the rule and the standard for everything in our life. And that puts a binding obligation upon us that man as a fallen creature wants to reject, does not want to accept. It's restrictive. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, how we want to do it. We want to feel good. We want to indulge our... Sin nature. We want to indulge in our mental attitude sins. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want somebody telling us we can't do certain things. But what the Bible claims is that this is the only source of life. 
and that the, the ultimately the revelation of God is given through His Son, who is also called the Word. Jesus is the Logos of God, the Word. And it is through Him that we have a true revelation of who God is, and we'll see that when we begin our study next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, that it is absolute truth, that it is in Your light, that is Your revelation, that we see light. This is how we understand truth. Father, we thank you that above all you have given us your word in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died on the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. They would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in you. Scripture says there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The issue is simply trusting you, that it is by a trust and reliance upon what you have done, what Christ did on the cross, that we have eternal life. Now, Father, we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.